This morning's scripture comes from Acts 13. Now, in the church of Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. The two of them, sent on their way by the Holy Spirit, went down to Seleucia and sailed from there to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogues. John was with them as their helper. They traveled through the whole island until they came to Paphos. The word of the Lord spread through the whole region, but the Jewish leaders incited the God-fearing women of high standing and the leading men of the city. They stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from their region. So they shook the dust off their feet as a warning to them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Hey, good morning. It's so good to see you. Welcome to Trinity Community Church. Uh, I want to begin by saying a big thank you uh, just to all of you who uh, were participating last weekend and so encouraging to our friends Michael and Julie who serve in the Middle East. They were just ecstatic at the end of their visit here last weekend. They enjoyed the Sunday gathering, the time with our missions team and our leaders, and especially Sunday night prayer. SNP was hopping. It was uh, one of our best ones ever. It was the most people we've ever had in our home. A little crazy. Um, but we were singing, praying, laying hands on them, and they were so blessed by that. They were asking, like, is this normal? We were like, this is a good one, but yeah, this is kind of normal. This is what we do. Julie said, I've, I've never, or I haven't been a part of something like this since college. Uh, and then Michael afterwards said, we normally go around telling everybody about what God's doing in our city. And then he was joking, I think. But like, now we're going to go around and tell everybody what God's doing in Columbia Mo. <laughs> Uh, it's just remarkable to see uh, how encouraged they were by you all. And I thought of the, the little book of Third John, uh, shortest book in the New Testament, 15 verses, which basically exists just to commend a, a church and a group of believers for welcoming and receiving these traveling missionaries. It also uh, like puts on blast one guy who did not welcome them. Uh, it's a savage little book. Um, but here's what it says. You are faithful in what you are doing for the brothers and sisters, even though they are strangers to you. It was for the sake of the name that they went out, receiving no help from the pagans. We ought, therefore, to show hospitality to such people so that we may work together for the truth. And so I thank God and I praise God for you all and for this just wonderful little church and everything that God is doing in us and through us. So uh, last week we did kind of part one of this mission sermon, the, the heart for missions. This week I'm going to look at the role of the local church in missions. We'll look at missions in the early church, missions in our church, and then missions and you, your role in missions. So let me pray for us and then we're going to get into the text. And Father, we just thank you that you have given this little church your heart for the nations. Thank you for being a God who is worthy of 
are praiseworthy of telling the whole world about. We thank you that you are a God who stands ready to welcome and embrace people from all nations. Uh, a God who has sent your own son in order uh, that we might receive that embrace. And so, Lord, I just pray for this time, and I pray specifically for those in this room who are exploring a, a sense of calling uh, to give a portion of their life or all of their lives to spreading the gospel among the nations. Lord, the, uh, the dozen or maybe 20 or 30 people even that you are going to raise up from this congregation to go out into the world, would you encourage and bless and comfort and challenge and equip them this morning? And for the rest of us, Lord, would you, uh, would you sharpen our, our focus? Would you warm our hearts, not only to your glory and your praise, but your glory being known and experienced among all nations? I'm aware of so much spiritual opposition that can come up in messages like this, and we can just feel overwhelmed or confused. And so, Lord, would you push back on all that? this morning and show us the role that we can each play in spreading your kingdom across the earth, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, now we're going to pick this right up, chapter 13, verse 1. Last week we saw chapter 11, how the gospel spread into this city of Antioch almost by accident as Gentiles begin to believe the gospel message and they're converted in this, this diverse global city in modern-day Turkey. And so Paul and Barnabas spend uh, a year there preaching and starting churches and appointing leaders. And then it says in verse 1 of our passage, Now in the church at Antioch there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Mannion who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And I want to, to sort of draw out of this chapter sort of four marks of the early church's uh, sending role, their, their role in sending out mission teams into all the nations, and four things that will, if we can embrace these four things, we will, we will do well as a sending church. And the first thing just comes right off the page in these first two verses, and it's the diversity of leaders here in this church. There's five people mentioned here. They're likely the main leaders of the Antioch church. And so first we have Barnabas, a Jewish pastor. We know from earlier in Acts that he was a, a priest in the Levite tradition. He came to faith in Jesus. So he was well-educated. He was wealthy because he was, he's giving land away in Acts chapter 4. And so that's, that's Barnabas. He was renamed the son of encouragement. That's how, how encouraging he was as a, as a human being. And then second, we have Simeon called Niger, which is likely a reference to his home country in North Africa. Lucius is also from Cyrene, a city in North Africa, but he has a Greek name. There's Mannion, who came up under Herod, who was a, a very controversial uh, public figure, to say the least. And then Saul, who was Jewish by ethnicity, but raised in modern Turkey. Uh, he came to faith when Jesus appeared to him on the road, but he was previously a Roman citizen who is trained as a Pharisee, a theologian. And so just in these, these five people, it's, it's incredible. You have two Africans, a theologian from Europe, a former priest, and a politician. Like, it's like a bad joke, like they all walk into a bar. It's one of those situations. So just try to imagine. That, I don't know if it's possible to have a more culturally diverse group of men leading this church. I mean, they're they are wildly different from each other. 
And that was a beautiful strength of theirs. Because it allowed them to have eyes to see the, the opportunity out among all nations. And it also provided them with a little bit of, of buffer from their, their weak spots and their blind spots. Because they could see things from different perspectives, each as they're following Jesus. And so we see a diversity of leader, leadership in this church. But notice, second, their commitment to worship, prayer, and fasting. That comes in verse 2. It says, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, which is always just amazing, the Holy Spirit speaks, he speaks today, and the Holy Spirit says, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. The two of them were sent on their way by the Holy Spirit. Now there is a, a remarkable commitment to prayer throughout the book of Acts. I mean, you see it on basically every page. In chapter 1, the disciples are praying before the coming of the Spirit. At the end of chapter 1, they pray before choosing a successor to Judas. Chapter 2 opens, and they're gathered in prayer as the Spirit descends. At the end of chapter 2, the new believers have gathered together in prayer. At the beginning of chapter 3, we find them going up to the temple to pray. And you can basically trace this through all 28 chapters of the book. They are constantly in prayer, constantly dependent on the presence of God. And I don't know if you've heard that phrase, hope is not a strategy. You know, it's, it's like supposed to say, like, don't just hope for good things, but get out there and work for them. It probably comes from like a Peloton video or something like that. But I think so many of us as Christians can, can basically adopt that, that saying, that, that prayer is not a strategy. Instead, you've got to go out there and you've got, to, you've got to work for it. Don't just pray about it. Get out there and do something. But the more we, we immerse ourselves in the book of Acts and immerse ourselves in the lives of the early church, we see prayer is the best possible strategy. I mean, why would we, why would we rely on our own strength and our own energy and our own intellect when we could lean on the power and wisdom of God at every moment? That's exactly what the early church does. They are constant in prayer and fasting and worship. Now, the third thing I want you to notice is their orientation is to mission. I mean, throughout this chapter, throughout this whole book, their, their lifestyle was like a perpetual missions trip. They're constantly sending and going. There's this symbiotic relationship between the church and the mission teams that are coming out from them. Chapter 13, we see them plant churches in Cyprus and then Pisidian Antioch, which is a different Antioch. Chapter 14, they start churches in Iconium, and then they go to Lystra, and then Derby, and then back to Antioch. They go to Jerusalem in chapter 15. Chapter 16, they're back. They go to, Thessal or to Galatia and then Philippi. Chapter 17, they go to Thessalonica and then Berea and then Athens. Chapter 18, they go to Corinth and then Ephesus and on and on and on and on. I would encourage you to, to read these chapters, Acts 13 to 18 especially, to see these early missionary journeys of Paul and his companions. It's incredible. And Michael Green, the theologian I mentioned last week, he says, the notable thing about their church life was its orientation. They were not into maintenance, but into mission. It is true that they had nothing to maintain in the earliest days. Even by the end of the New Testament period, they had no property to tie them down except the homes of their members. But one cannot avoid the impression, looking over the sweep of Acts, these people never would have settled for a maintenance mentality anyway. 
It is impossible to miss the missionary thrust of this book and of this church. Their whole orientation was to mission. Now, it's not to say that maintenance is bad. We, we care about uh, our, our own souls and our own lives. We're into contemplative prayer and counseling and doing the inner work, all of those things. But really, all of those things function best in an orientation toward mission. When you are still doing something with your life, not merely looking within for the sake of looking within, but looking within so that you might connect more deeply with God and love and serve people more deeply. It's like riding a bicycle. All my illustrations are cycling. It just goes better when you're moving forward, right? You stop pedaling for a little while, something bad is probably going to happen. So continue to move forward. That's the message of the early church. And then lastly, the fourth thing is the early church's willingness to suffer. I mean, their willingness to endure hardship and persecution and suffering for the gospel is unbelievable. It says towards the end of the chapter, but the Jewish leaders incited the God-fearing women of high standing and the leading men of the city. So these are, these are, are Jewish leaders that don't believe in Jesus. They stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from their region. So the disciples shook the dust off their feet as a warning to them and went on to Iconium. I mean, literally in every town that they visit, they're opposed, they're persecuted, they're often beat up or thrown in jail or killed or, or like they did to Paul, threw him out and beat him at the edge of the city. And it only strengthens them. Like it only deepens their commitment to what they're doing. They're not surprised to be rejected. They're not like thrown off when non-Christians act like non-Christians, you know. They expect it to be hard. And when it is hard, they see it as a mark that the Lord is working in and through them. Again, Michael Green writes this. He says, you cannot defeat people like this. Tell them to keep quiet and they disobey you. Throw them in prison and they convert the jailer. Stone them to within an inch of their lives in one city and they carry on in the next. Kill them and others arise to take their place. Endurance like that simply has to win in the long run. Verse 52 shows us the end of the chapter, the, the result of their efforts. It says the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. We saw this last week, and I quoted Tim Keller saying that there is a direct connection between missions and joy. And we see that most clearly in John 17, where Jesus is praying, and he says, we, he, I send them into the world as the Father sends me, so that their joy may be full. A direct connection between joy and missions, and the, the suffering, the persecution, the hardship. I'm not trying to minimize it or say that it wasn't incredibly difficult, but it serves to increase their joy in the Lord. And so this is life in the early church. This is missions in the early church. There's a diverse set of leaders. There's a commitment to prayer, an orientation to mission, and they're willing to endure suffering. And so what about us? What about us as a church? This is the second thing, missions in, in our church. Our, our heart for missions has been part of this congregation from the very beginning. You probably heard uh, Michael and Julie last week say that we began supporting them financially even before we actually moved here. So even before we had any income as a church, we committed $50 a month to them. They didn't say the amount, which was gracious of them. We we're like, we think we can do 50. We'll find out. Uh, and we've increased it over time every year. 
but from the very beginning, we, we put together a missions team. I mean, there was a point in the church where we had small groups, Trinity Kids, and missions. And those were literally the first ministries that we had. And the reason for that is because the need in the, the world is so incredibly great. Often when we think of missions, it can, it can get kind of cloudy and, and we can get overwhelmed and just kind of confused. But I think of the, the task of world missions in, in sort of four different categories, and I hope these are helpful. The first one is that we're called to, to equip the church in, in underreached areas. So you can think here of a, a person who is involved in uh, maybe a teaching and training leaders in Central America or doing medical missions in Central Africa where the church is present, it's thriving, they're able to reach their neighbors, but they still have a significant need for help from the outside. So that's the first category. The second one is reaching de-churched or, or under-churched areas. Uh, so like the, the people we just prayed for, our friends Stephen and Ashley, they're serving in Spain where there's 1% to 2% believers in the entire country. This is a place that had a gospel presence at one time and now it's gone almost totally spiritually dry. We can serve and try to reach these areas. The third category is unreached peoples and cities. This is what we saw last week with what Michael and Julie are doing in their city in the Middle East, in the Muslim world and in Hindu parts of the world where there are less than 1% evangelical. So much of the earth's population is in one of these places where there is little to no presence of the church. And then there's one more category, and that's frontier mission groups or frontier people groups. Now, these are people groups that are totally disconnected from a church presence. These are places where there is virtually no Christian community and typically not even a missionary team trying to reach them. Uh, the Joshua Project says that there are still around 5,000 frontier people groups in the world that have not yet been engaged with the gospel. There's more than 2 billion people living in those groups. So about a fourth of the world's population has zero access to the gospel whatsoever. Now, in these four categories, you can kind of see that they, they sort of get more difficult as you move down. And we might think that the, the groups at the bottom, like the frontier people groups, should get the majority of our, our missions, prayer and resources and emphasis. But the reality is that the opposite is often true. We're often sending most of our missions, money, and resources to places that are already fairly Christian in their, in their worldview, in their culture. In fact, only 3% of all missionaries are serving among frontier peoples. And so there's this, this huge imbalance. Now, I recognize that one of the things that can happen in these sermons is that you can start to, to get overwhelmed. And as you think about these different categories, and you think, well, I'm, I'm not really called to missions or maybe uh, sometimes I've heard it more like I can't think about missions for more than two seconds because I'm afraid that I'll be called. I, I understand it. It can be overwhelming. We'll get you there. But, but what does this look like for us? Where do, we, where do we find ourselves regardless of where we're at in relationship to world missions? Our missions team has put together a graphic read. You can go ahead and put it on up. There's three steps on the left that are the same for everybody regardless of where you're at. The first is to evaluate, uh, to meet with a mission team member or somebody who's got missions connections here and to help you determine your next step in the mission pathway to develop a, a, a heart for God's, God's work, to explore your own motivations 
in relationship to missions. So the second step is to be exposed, uh, to learn more about the nations through a missions training course like Perspectives that we support here. And then third, to examine, to assess your own calling, resources, barriers to missions. And this is where with, with the community around you, we can help you discern whether it's right for you to go or to remain. Now, whether you go or remain, there are similar steps as well. On the go path, you can explore. Uh, before you even go overseas, you can identify a specific location or partner organization. You can find training and put together a budget, figure out what kind of support would be necessary for you to go. There are people here that are in this stage and in the next stage in vision, taking trips with, with the support of our, our missions team and our funding to, to explore different parts of the world, teams that are serving overseas. We've, we've helped people do these vision trips overseas as well. And then lastly, engage, to actively prepare for life on the mission field through training and learning the language and support raising. And so that's what the go path looks like. But there's also a remain path. And exploring looks like finding specific ways to engage the nations here and now through prayer, welcoming missionaries, sending and supporting those that are overseas. And then in the same way, we also envision, we try to align our heart and our life and our resources with the way that God has called us to engage. We shift our, our priorities, our finances, our time, our relationships. And then third, we also engage. We cultivate relationships with missionaries and, and those that have gone out from Trinity or those who are connected to Trinity. We can engage with our international neighbors that live here in town. We can support missionaries, which is one of the, the best things you can do. I think everybody should be supporting an international missionary, praying for them. And then the final step comes back together on both paths, and that's to endure to continue the work that God has called you to for the renewal of his kingdom with a steadfast partnership, care, and prayer. Now, all of our community groups have got a, a detailed version of this graphic, and so you can talk through it as a community group this week uh, or whenever you get together next as a community group. We would love for you to ask, where am I at in this pathway and what is my next step? So remember, there is a direct connection between missions and joy. If we want to maximize joy, if we want to maximize peace in our lives, we would do well to spend time praying through where we're at, what's going on in our hearts, and try to take these next steps. Now, that's the last thing, missions and you. You can, you can pop that down. Thank you. I said last week that we, we hope and pray that we as a church can be a, a sending church, a launching pad for people into the nations. We believe this church could, could have an incredible impact on the nations. Because think about it, you could, a young person especially could, could come to Columbia, do their, their training at, at Mizzou or one of the other colleges. Uh, most missionaries are also serving in the marketplace in the, in the cities where they live. And so you can get training here. You can come uh, to Trinity and you could have your, your heart shaped. You could be full of good doctrine and, and filled up with the Holy Spirit. You could find your own missionary care team here in your community group. And then on uh, the lines of this pathway, we can help you identify a place and a team, and we can launch you out into the mission field and sustain you and care for you all along the way. If you think about it, the things that we're 
good at as a church. We're not great at everything. We've got plenty of areas to work on. But the things that we're actually good at really line you up well for world missions. I mean, think about it. We're very community-oriented. All of our ministry model is relational, and that translates really well to the mission field. We have a firm commitment to teaching God's Word and the gospel, not just sort of feel-good messages. So you have, been, you have been immersed in the gospel and good doctrine more than you perhaps even realize. We're all about hospitality here. We're always making room for outsiders. Even when we can turn inward, we want to try to make space for those on the outside. We're a spirit-filled church, and dependence on the Holy Spirit is essential for going out into the mission field. Our prayer focus is actually far more common on the mission field than it is here in the States. And we also have a really high emphasis on on non-staff leaders and volunteers. So it's not just a group of a few different professionals doing the ministry for everyone else, but here everyone is called and equipped and engaged to do ministry. And all of these things are intentional because it helps uh, all of this, what we do as a church, we want it to be translatable. We want you to be able to take it into another church or another city or another country. Take it to the mission field. We want it all to feel normal when you are sent out into the world. Sometimes I've heard other churches say like, well, what can we do? We're not really, nobody in our congregation seems to be going out into the mission field. And if they do, they're not doing well. It's like, well, maybe the first step is just shutting down the fog machine. Like there might be a way to, to do things a little bit differently in our own congregations to set people up with a heart for the world in training far before they even need it. The best way to learn to practice the way of Jesus together for the renewal of all nations is to first do it in your own community, your own church, your own neighborhood. Jesse and I really considered going overseas early in our marriage. We almost moved uh, to Beijing, true story. Uh, We didn't feel like the timing was quite right. Uh, A couple of years later, we took a vision trip to Uganda. Uh, For a season, felt like that's where God was calling us. And then we got there, and there's some weird stuff going on with the team there, and it was just clear it wasn't the right place for us. In the next year that followed, we got a a much stronger call to the local church and pastoral ministry. But even with that, we found ways to continue to be deeply connected to missions. We both are involved in spiritual direction and care for missionaries. We're going to El Salvador in a couple months, which you all are actually sending us to El Salvador to lead a, a retreat for missionaries. So thank you for doing that, for supporting us, even if you didn't realize you are, but your giving here is supporting us to go to El Salvador, which we're going to love. In the same way, we want to consider you, what would it look like for you to be fully engaged in the mission field? Whether it's in in small bits of support, or maybe it's even giving a percentage of your life to missions. If you're a college student, you could consider giving two or three years overseas with a missions organization. You just simply take your first job in a, in a less-reached place around the world. When I was in Spain last year, I got to meet several uh, young Americans who were doing grad school in Madrid, or they simply chose to take their first management job in Spain because it was so unreached relative to the States. You could spend a part of your career serving uh, and supporting the church in Central Africa or years doing college ministry in Asia. You could join a team doing frontier mission work in one of these totally unreached people groups. 
What if, you, what if you thought about your career? If you have 50 years in your working career and you just tithed five years of those 50 into world missions. Now, even if you're less young, if you're, if you're more mature and more stable, there's still a huge opportunity for you as well. Our friends Larry and Susan, as soon as their kids were all out of the house, like literally they said like the month their daughter was graduating high school, they moved to a, a major world city all the way across the globe. And they both had jobs that they could do remotely, and so they took their jobs overseas. They spend their evenings just telling their neighbors about Jesus, opening up their home. Every weekend they're in different churches supporting the small local churches in that area. It's, it's a beautiful way to spend their, their lives, the second half of their lives. You can even give your retirement to the nations. We saw people doing this. I mean, maybe if you didn't hit all your financial goals that were set out for you and it's, you're like 67 and a half and you're like, I'm not sure that I have enough saved. You know where you can go and have plenty of retirement money? Like Sudan, you know? Like you will be set in Sudan, Saudi Arabia, Indonesia, all these different parts of the world. You will have more than enough. Now, some of you, it won't be enough to give just a few weeks or a few months or a few years to missions. You'll, you'll see the incredible joy of somebody from a completely non-Christian background hearing the gospel in their native language, putting their faith in Christ, seeing a church established for the first time in the history of a people group, and you, you just won't be able to come home. And we, we hope that's the case. I mean, come home occasionally. But we hope that some of you will give your lives to this. And even if you explore all this and you, you decide to, to stay on the, the remain path of our missions pathway, we can all be like Barnabas in this passage, that, that encouraging voice, that person whose, whose whole life is wrapped up in encouragement. Maybe you can think about somebody in your community group who's exploring a call to missions right now, and you can just meet up with them over coffee or have them over for dinner and just help them pray through that and wrestle through that calling. If you are supporting a missionary, you can just set a little reminder on your phone to email them every month and just ask, how can I be praying for you this month? And just remind them that you are praying for them. Those things go so far. We have such a, a sure promise in the Scriptures. We have the promise of Jesus that we shared last week from Matthew 24. This gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. We know with, with complete certainty that people from every tongue, tribe, and people group will be worshiping God in the new creation. And yet, until every single language is represented in heaven, until all of God's image is, is represented completely in heaven, we still have this beautiful work to do. I mean, two billion people with no access to the gospel. I mean, if you just spend like a week thinking about that, it'll blow your mind. We were created for incredible and difficult missions. Our hearts are, are captured by these great journeys and, and heroic battles. It's what we were designed for. We end up just, just giving them to such lesser things but we often say here, we don't want to just play church. 
for the next 30 years. We don't want to just settle for a fraction of what God has for us. We don't want to be more influenced by others' view of us than of God's mission for us. It will absolutely be difficult. Nothing is, is harder. Nothing incites more spiritual opposition. But nothing is, is more, more shown in the Scriptures to, to cultivate the joy and peace of yourself and others than completely trusting God with our lives. The victory has already been won. The, the tomb is empty. The, the curtain has been torn. And the embrace of the Father is, is just waiting. God is waiting with arms wide open for people from every single corner of the globe. Our opportunity is simply to go and tell them. Tell them that God loves them, accepts them, forgives them, and can reconcile them into his kingdom. We get to go and tell people that. Let's pray. Father, we are so overwhelmed by your goodness and your love, your power, and your beauty. And at the same time, overwhelmed by how much of the world has, has no idea how to, be, how to be reconciled to you, how to be restored to you. It seems like all people have an, an idea that you might be there, a longing that you're there. And yet for so many, there's, there's no opportunity to, to hear, to believe, to trust. And Father, as, as, a, as a church in America, our priorities can get so, so out of orientation and, and so out of line with the New Testament. And so Lord, would you give us your own heart? Would it deepen and increase in us? that our priorities would look more like your priorities, our mission like your mission. Lord, I thank you for the heart of this church to know you, worship you, live in the light of your face, share the gospel, and Lord, would you just deepen and build all of these things in our midst. As we grow up as a little church, would you just cultivate a deeper and deeper heart for the nations, God? Lord, we thank you. We love you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.